Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that would follow its instincts, but screaming into a microphone for an hour wouldn't sound very nice. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and as the Prime Minister's special advisor and haunted Giacometti sculpture entitled Entitled, Dominic Cummings admits that he took a 60 mile long car journey just to test his eyesight, I'd say that was unnecessary as it's clear from all his other decisions just how short-sighted he actually is. You idiots! All of you stupid idiots! Yeah, you! You that's listening there, you idiot! Spending lockdown in your homes like a massive stupid... Oh, I'd like to stop the spread of the infection, twat! Oh, you thought stay at home meant stay at home, did you? Well, you're a moron, because if you were a reasonable person, you'd have interpreted the rules yourself and understood that actually you can return to work when you've had COVID-19 symptoms, and then you could have driven a 260-mile trip with your family while fully symptomatic, popped to the woods and then done another drive while you can't actually see, just to test if you can see, and then drive all the way back to London. That's what a responsible parent like Dominic Cummings did, but not you, you stupid. And Cummings is definitely a responsible parent because top responsible parent and what if a traffic island fucked a creme brulee, Boris Johnson said that he is. And Johnson knows what parental responsibility is because otherwise how would he be able to avoid it so easily? I can't think of anything more responsible than saying, oh, I might not be able to see. Let's put the boy in the car for a drive. Take that super nanny. I sympathise because whenever I'm about to have a diabetic hypo attack, I feel like the most sensible thing I could do would be to put my daughter on the back of a motorbike and take a trip to the busiest shopping centre near me to see if I'm okay to race around at high speeds or if I'll have a coma onto the handlebars near boots. See, that's why he's hired for special advice. Who else would have given the sort of guidance over the last six months that the Prime Minister should strap the country in and drive forwards regardless of whether they can see what's ahead? Sitting in number 10's Rose Garden, an appropriate location for a man who's constantly a thorn in Britain's side, Dominic Cummings said that he believes he's behaved responsibly and legally, proving that the government's lockdown message was so vague and useless, even the people who wrote it don't fucking understand it. I mean, so much so that he even flouted rules in his press conference by being in a pal's garden and not an open space or park. 
that the Prime Minister's special advisor has been responsible and legal, that's been the message over the weekend since it was revealed that Cummings drove all the way to Durham during lockdown, a breach of the rules of the kind that has already seen the former chief medical officer in Scotland have to resign and a government scientist step down. Though the former was just popping to her second home and the latter was having an affair. And as the Prime Minister said in Cummings' defence, at least he wasn't visiting a lover. I mean, I think that was in his defence, but with Johnson it's likely that he'd think that's a better reason than showing any sort of responsibility for a child. Dominic Cummings, of course, responsible, reasonable man Dominic Cummings, breached rules for his son that was unwell. And the welfare of a child is the sort of thing a responsible parent must put first, said the Prime Minister, before reiterating that schools will reopen on June the 1st in the middle of a pandemic. It is amazing that we even got a non-apology out of Cummings, a man who looks like he's composed entirely out of clothes pegs. As at the beginning of the weekend, when the story first broke, he stayed very quiet indeed. At that point in the week, Boris Johnson had just been told that he wouldn't face a criminal investigation over his relationship with businesswoman and person who looks like if they did breeding just for reality show fodder, Jennifer R. Curie, who received quite a bit of government funding around the same time she was in a relationship with him. Then again, maybe it was pity money from all the people who knew what it was like to spend more than 10 minutes with Boris. The Independent Office for Police Conduct did find evidence of an intimate relationship between Johnson and R. Curie, but apparently it was too much to say it was a conflict of interests, potentially because they were just in so much shock that he hadn't got her pregnant at some point and then they couldn't really carry on. So, off the hook for that, but within 24 hours, The Mirror and The Guardian revealed a joint investigation that Cummings had travelled to Durham after number 10 and said he was self-isolating. It must have just been that he was self-isolating in several different locations at once. You know, like you can, as long as you ignore the existence of anyone else there. Durham is where the Cummings family are, and if he'd just explained that when he'd said if some pensioners die too bad, that Dominic had meant his own parents, we'd have been less appalled by it and just assumed he'd never stop being an angry 14-year-old. Police confirmed they'd visited an individual who travelled from Durham to London and advised them about the lockdown guidance, which for Cummings must have been really hard for him not to offer to sign it for them throughout. Then days later, his parents' neighbours said they spotted him in the garden listening to Abba. How ill could he have been if he was dancing to the Swedish pop legends? Well, I'm not sure, but I've seen bits of Mamma Mia and everyone in that is clearly very unwell. The story was that him and his wife were ill and they needed help with childcare for their son, something that they clearly couldn't get in the area of London where they live because everyone there thinks he's a bellend and would probably find almost any excuse not to. Oh, I'm sorry, Dominic, I can't help right now. I'm too busy counting all the individual fibres in a carpet that I've thought of. Imagine being ill and having to look after a child. I mean, that is a situation so exceptional that I'm certain absolutely no one else during lockdown has ever had to deal with it and wouldn't have been able to without travelling half the country and fobbing off care to someone else. It turned out in Cummings' account that it wasn't his parents he was visiting, it was his sisters and young nieces, because you're not a proper Tory unless you unnecessarily put the youth at risk at every opportunity. They'd volunteered to help, but they stayed in separate houses and didn't actually help, and you sort of wonder why anyone bothered, but Cummings said he acted responsibly and legally, just, you know, not as responsible or legal as anyone who'd have stayed at home and looked after their kid there. The defences of Cummings started jizzing in from all the typical suspects. Deflated pig's bladder Michael Gove tweeted that caring for your wife and child is not a crime. Yes, but leaving your six-year-old son in a hotel room by himself for six hours, like you did a few years ago, Michael, definitely is. Oh, and so's cocaine abuse. But hey-ho, I guess if anyone knows where to draw the line, it's Gove. Inflamed nostril Dominic Raab tweeted that those seeking to politicise Cummings' Durham Drive should take a long, hard look in the mirror, something that Raab is incapable of doing due to a lack of reflection. There's every chance Raab also thinks Durham is somewhere in London. 
Rishi, I wore a suit in my sixth form, Sunak, also criticised anyone politicising a government employee breaching government rules. Because, let's face it, he's incapable of bailing anyone out without ruining it somehow. The sort of man who boasts about a talent contest he won without revealing no one else entered it, Matt Hancock, said a week before that Professor Ferguson's flouting of rules was extraordinary and the police should take action. But he had a very different view on his pal Dominic Cummings, who Hancock said was entirely right. You know, apart from that bit where Hancock also said a few weeks ago that staying home was not a rule, but an instruction. Picture next to an article about how the killer was a quiet type, Oliver Dowden, tweeted that Cummings followed the guidelines and looked after his family, end of story, which shows why he's a terrible culture secretary as that's a shit story with an unsatisfying end and it would definitely flop at the box office. Even Cummings himself appeared briefly outside his home saying that he didn't care how it looked, told journalists to stand two metres apart and walked off with a tricycle and a football, the latter of which is one of the games you aren't allowed to play in public areas under lockdown rules. He just can't help himself. Papier Maché Corpse from a 70s murder mystery, Grant Shapps, was wheeled out for the daily briefing to take the initial hit of questions, because it's obvious they made him transport secretary in order to throw him under the bus first. Shapps tried his best to respond to every question with how he actually wanted to talk about his plans to upgrade the A66, because he's so shit that even his route out of awkward questions involves a road that goes through County Durham and will eventually allow Dominic Cummings to flout rules even quicker. It turns out Oliver Dowden, and in fact everyone, was wrong. And on Saturday night it was revealed that Cummington breached lockdown rules again, being spotted in Durham a second time on April the 19th after returning to London on the 14th. But weirdly, all those Conservative MPs didn't then quickly rally round to tweet that breaking the law isn't a crime. Odd. Instead, several other Tory MPs said that Cummings must be sacked, including arch-Brexiteer and small paintbrush Steve Baker. But of course he'd say that, as all he's ever gone on about is how everyone should leave. The Lib Dems and SNP insisted that Cummings should be sacked too, and Labour chose not to say anything for a bit, probably because four of their MPs have also breached rules and somehow kept their jobs. The government said those later incidents weren't true, that the police weren't telling the truth, and it made everyone start to wonder if actually this is all just a massive dead cat to distract from how Grant Shapps is going to tarmac the A66 with spare PPE and hoping no one will get to ask him about it. Johnson took the daily briefing on Sunday and said that Cummings followed the instinct of every parent, though I'm guessing that was just through using Facebook data. The PM said it was up to each individual how to follow lockdown rules, which is really frustrating. If only we'd known that before, and I could have interpreted over the past few weeks that stay-at-home meant have a holiday in Barbados. I'm properly gutted. Behavioural scientists working with the government said that Boris Johnson's press briefing in just a few minutes managed to trash all the advice that they gave on how to build trust around the COVID-19 measures, including that we're all in this together. But that's not true, as most of the country is absolutely united around thinking Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson are useless twats. Finally, after all that had happened, Labour leader and Tower fan Keir Starmer finally made some sort of a statement about how there needs to be an investigation because that's always the best way to get immediate action on an urgent issue, you know, in four to five years' time. Starmer didn't demand that Cummings get the sack, but he did say if he was Prime Minister, he'd have sacked him, which is obvious as you'd have had a Conservative advisor for a Labour leadership. That's weird, and Starmer won't need one of those when he already has Rachel Reeves. And then, after the weekend... Cummings did his very own, very long press briefing where the tactic seemed to be to bore his critics to death. 
It started 30 minutes late as no doubt the traffic on the A66 had been terrible. And it mainly ran through how he definitely had Covid but didn't get a test and he went back to work flouting the rules and then went home and his wife also had it so they drove up north flouting the rules and his wife and son went to a hospital which later had a ton of cases and then after being ill he also flouted the rules again by deciding to test his eyesight by taking his son on a 60 mile drive before deciding actually it was fine to flout the rules again and drive all the way home and return to work. But apparently that was all being reasonable and lawful and he has no regrets because regrets require emotion and an understanding of morals. Cummings blamed the media for telling mistruths before admitting that both he and his wife wrote articles about having coronavirus where they didn't say they'd gone to Durham and that was fine. He didn't tell the PM that he was travelling during the lockdown because he said Johnson's time is the most valuable commodity in government, probably on account of how little he's actually at work. Cummings said he filled up the car before his drive and didn't stop the whole way because it turns out that his vehicle runs on magic and his four-year-old son has the bladder of a blue whale. And mostly, Dominic Cummings didn't apologise at all and everyone questioned every detail of what he said but absolutely none of it matters because he just shouldn't have left his home in the first place and that is one thing that he definitely did wrong. Overall, Cummings' mega dull speech was massively unsatisfying. And not just because we know that one day it'll be recreated by Benedict Cumberbatch doing his best infinite head cold and entire body made of wood acting. No, instead because actually he didn't apologise, he got loads of details confused and I'd have felt far better if, if he'd just driven all the way back up to Durham with a loud hailer out the window shouting fuck the plebs. After he'd finished, Johnson held a press conference and he mainly announced that car showrooms will be opening soon because if you can't see your family, you might as well consider getting a new vehicle to drive up to see Dominic Cummings' family instead, as apparently that's fine. On Cummings' eye test drive, Johnson said that he needed to use spectacles for the first time in ages since he got ill, so maybe it does affect your eyes and that might explain why he's unable to see just how transparent it is that all of this is bullshit. As it stands, Dominic Cummings is still in his job. Johnson is in his too and you're stuck at home not allowed to drive to Durham because you don't care about your children enough. I would say that this is the perfect time for a revolution but we won't be allowed to march on Parliament to start it. Maybe instead we can all drive there en masse, you know, in order to check if our eyes are okay. Hmm? Who's in? In other news, Home Secretary and physical embodiment of the website Next Door, Pretty Patel, announced a 14-day quarantine for anyone arriving in the UK after June the 8th, by which point the country will be back on lockdown again with its 17th peak and they can just walk around as they please. When asked why the airport quarantine wasn't coming in till June instead of immediately, Patel responded with, we're bringing in the measures now. Though to be fair, I've also lost all concept of what day it is in this lockdown, so for someone who struggles with numbers, the Home Secretary probably thinks it's already the 300,034th, 974,000th of June already. Just days earlier, Patel's immigration bill passed its second reading as she boasted about how, by restricting who can come to Britain, we were gaining access to the world. As though now our club entry is exclusive, everywhere else will welcome us in, rather than say fuck it, I'd prefer to wear trainers and not be surrounded by racists, so I'll go elsewhere. During the bill reading, Patel insisted that NHS fees paid by foreign health work staff must stay, but said they were continuing to do what they could to support frontline NHS workers, because somehow she thinks draining them of all their money so they can go to work on a day off for healthcare is supportive. I'm not sure treat and mean works on healthcare workers, otherwise after the last 10 years of cuts, the NHS should be vastly overstaffed with doctors and nurses. What other supportive plans did she have? Daubing abuse in paint on their walls, tying them to train tracks... The surcharge was back the next day by the Prime Minister as he waffled on about how foreign workers in the NHS had saved his life, but it was important that they still fork out if they need treatment. Almost as though you might have thought this was unfair to remember that they kept Johnson alive and you don't really do shit like that without comeuppance. 
The PM said that it was the right way forward to have an NHS surcharge as it raised £900 million a year for the NHS, which would be difficult to do without actually funding it properly whilst also not exploiting people. And, And that's not really their brand, so, you know... But within 24 hours, the government had U-turned on this charge, with Patel saying through teeth that had likely had maximum grit that they'd remove the surcharge as soon as possible with further details soon. Which is great, but probably means it'll only be for two weeks or something before returning with added interest for lost months and a new name of something hugely unimaginative like NHS Edition Charge or NHS Pay to Play. Former Chancellor and host body for Hive, George Osborne, popped his head over the parapet to say that there should be more austerity after the pandemic and, oh, he has a new girlfriend. I do hope she's careful as judging by his keenness to push Britain back into hard times, there's every chance he'll do nothing to give her any benefits and she'll wake up one morning with a whole load of unnecessary cuts. Auditors have found that the now disbanded independent group for change inappropriately destroyed their financial records. You might remember the group that said politics is broken and they would change it, then went through several names and members before being broken by politics and having all the impact of a dart missing its target and somehow landing on its thrower's foot. All the party's bank statements and files recording details of donations to the party were destroyed by former staff, which begs the question, did they have something to hide or was it the only logical thing to do to save donors dying of embarrassment that they basically pissed their money into a venture so pointless that if anyone does remember they existed in a year, it'll only be as they recall how they kept thinking the printers had accidentally left a barcode on the ballot papers. Along with the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, Yawn Maid of Tweed, Prince Charles, has launched the Pick for Britain campaign, persuading furloughed workers to harvest fruit and veg, saying that it'll be hard graft but very important, which is why Charles won't be doing it himself as he's never managed to fulfil anything in either of those categories before. Prince Charles called for a new land army, a movement that in World War II put women in agriculture, replacing all the men who'd been sent to war and died. The difference here being that this time it's our country's xenophobia that means we have absolutely no farm workers. Still, maybe lots of MPs on their week off will help, especially as they've proven time and time again how good they think they are at cherry picking. And Primark have announced their reopening in mid-June, but don't worry because even if you think you've caught COVID-19 from being in there, it'll actually be a really cheap copy of it made by children in sweatshops. Oh, God, how long will this week's episode be topical for? Um, who knows? That was a shambles, wasn't it? Sorry, that's very long. There was a lot to put in there, and I've left stuff out, and uh, I am too angry and tired to make it consistently funny. I hope it was okay. There is every chance that by the time you hear this, footage will have come out proving that Dominic Cummings held up a shell station at gunpoint while his four-year-old took a leak on the forecourt before the whole family intentionally coughed on a care home. I mean... I hope not, as that's grim. And also because he'll somehow still get away with it by just saying that he believes he acted reasonably and 7,000 Conservative MPs will all tweet that they'd eat his shit. I honestly have no idea how or if this will play out. Um, And there's every chance we'll just be gaslit on it and no one will say anything ever again. And this week's podcast will just seem very odd for those of you that listen to it at the end of the week, wondering why I'm going on about Dominic Cummings driving to Durham, when the big story now is how Pretty Patel spent lockdown standing on Kent beachfronts, swearing at France. So, I hope it was all right. Um, the plan, obviously, for this show, usually, and just to give you a little glimpse of the magic, um, a look behind the audio curtain, if you will. Usually, I write up a couple of bits on a Sunday, then I spend the Monday hammering away at the keyboard all morning and afternoon before recording early evening, editing all night, and then it's with you for one minute past midnight on a Tuesday morning, all packed up neatly into one shouty package. Um, but this week, uh, I'm recording this, it's now 5 to 11, um, because Dominic Cummings spoke for all of eternity earlier, and then John 
has said uh, about six million times at 7pm. And all I'm saying is there's no proper middle bit for this week's podcast, as I would like to sleep eventually. But I have quickly grabbed together all my descriptions for Dominic Cummings, as asked by Taz, who kindly donated to the Kofi this week. And look, I'll do almost anything for money. Almost. There are also two interviews this week, so it should bulk out nicely to waste more of your lockdown time, so don't worry about that. Anyway, more on this week's episode in a minute. Um, first, thank you again to all of you listening to whatever this week's uh, mess is. Uh, and big time thank you to Jane, Helen, Emma and Taz for donating to the Kofi. And should you wish to, um, actually I normally say get me a coffee, but this week I think buy me some sort of sharp, strong alcohol, then please wang your coins over to uh, ko-fi.com forward slash bro or join up at the patreon.com forward slash parpol bro and of course if you can't afford to do that or just don't want to and you prefer me to suffer the news while sober then a nice five star review will do on any of those podcast sites and even a shout to your chums to pop an ear towards this show and a subscribe would do lovely Right, that is it. There's no more admin. There's nothing else to say this week. I've got nothing left. I've got absolutely nothing left. Um, instead, let's just follow uh, conservative wishes and move on, as uh, everyone tweeted. Just move on. Move on, everyone. Um, on this week's show, I'm talking to both Christine Berry and Shreya Nanda from the Institute of Public Policy Research about why the government's bailout plan isn't progressive at all. What? What? I know, right? What? Surprise. And also, there's a chat with uh, Ghazal Hakani at the London Renters' Union all about their new Can't Pay, Won't Pay campaign, too. Uh, which is also about a whole ton of people that aren't getting any support right now. But of course, that's just all our fault, as if we'd only interpreted all the lockdown rules correctly, we could have used every day since March the 23rd, eschewing our needs to be tenants and roaming the land freely as responsible adults trusting our instincts. Ugh, for fuck's sake. You remember when Boris Johnson said his government would put their arms around every worker, even though it was right at the time where that would have breached all social distancing rules? Well, it now seems like they thought pledging virtual hugs would mean no one noticed the complete lack of actual support that they've given to vast swathes of society. You remember when Rishi Sunak said they'd stand behind businesses small and large? Well, it turns out that was mainly so he wouldn't have to look them in the face, as those same businesses realised they weren't being helped all that much at all. In fact, when you look at the fine detail of the whole bailout plan, it seems the only ones being given any sort of sustainable help at all are those who earn a living by not really earning a living. You know, for example, banks, whose entire job is to charge you for not stuffing money into your mattresses, and property owners, who grabbed all the homes so you can't and now make you pay more for them than they're worth. They're the ticket outs of buildings. If that's your life ambition, then don't worry, you'll be able to emerge into the non-corona world, making sure people can't have affordable access to basic things just like before. What more do you expect from a government whose brand has always been trying to sell things to people they would already have if they hadn't taken it from you in previous years? Sovereignty? Oh sure, no, we had that before you sold off all the assets to companies abroad. Control? Cool, we had that till austerity made many dependent despite having three jobs. A stable economy? Look, I mean, you get what I mean. Of course, uh, that's not how this current plan has been sold. Suddenly it's progressive and it's like nothing that's ever been done before uh, to do the bare minimum you have to do to keep institutions alive that weren't very helpful in the first place. I'm not sure you can use the word progressive when it's for something that actively takes us back to the situation we were in before, but worse. Oh, no, wait, no, no, wait, I see it now. Progressively worse. It's like saying you're future-proofing something by living in an Amish existence and refusing to accept what year it is. You have to wonder if those arms around every worker were there to pop them in a sleeper hold before they ask any sort of detailed questions. 
This week, I spoke to former podcast writer and researcher Christine Berry and her colleague and economist Shreya Nanda, who are two of the co-authors of the Institute of Public Policy Research's report, Who Wins and Who Pays? Rentier Power and the Covid Crisis. The report is a look into just who will benefit from the government's plan, who will lose out and what steps should be taken to address the inequality that will be caused if the government continue down this path, which they definitely will do. I asked them why the current bailout plan isn't as progressive as we're told it is, what other countries are doing right and just what on earth a rentier is as it sounds like a character from Dog Tanyon and the Three Muskerhounds. It's not, it's not that. I think you'll find this a very eye-opening interview and I'll pop a link to the report in the podcast blurb to have a look at once you've listened. Here's Christine and Shreya. Hi, Christine and Shreya. Thank you so much for joining me uh, on the podcast today. That's brilliant uh, to have you here. Um, Okay, so... I want to start by saying everyone was actually weirdly excited to see a Conservative government offer to support workers and small businesses um, in any sense. Uh, but the IPPR report, Who Wins and Who Pays, that you both uh, co-authored, um, says that their measures are likely to lead to higher inequality than we had before. So is their bailout plan at all progressive or just sort of more progressive than we were expecting from them? Um, and is it better than if they hadn't done anything at all? Um, yeah, I think this is a really interesting question because I think you're right that people did get quite excited. I would say maybe overexcited when they saw a Conservative government suddenly, you know, spending and borrowing hundreds of billions of pounds to underwrite wages and underwrite loans to small businesses. Um, but whether that is really progressive or not, it kind of depends on what our definition of progressive is, right? So I think there is still this kind of, maybe because we're stuck in a kind of anti-austerity mindset, I think there's still this idea on a lot of parts of the left that if the state is intervening and is spending lots of money, then that is inherently progressive. Whereas I think what we're trying to suggest with this report is, well, you actually need to look under the bonnet at who is ultimately paying for these crisis interventions and who is ultimately benefiting from them so who's ultimately going to be bearing the costs of the recession and the downturn and the lock and the lockdown and who's going to be benefiting um and how is this going to affect the balance of wealth and power in the economy um and what we suggest is that in a way it's unsurprising right because they because the conservative response is kind of pumping more money through an economy that we knew was already massively unequal and unfair and so that is surprise surprise going to lead to massively unequal and unfair outcomes right so ordinary people are still kind of largely paying for the crisis both in terms of there's a lot of research now showing that despite the furlough scheme a lot of ordinary people are going to lose income quite substantially a lot of people are still being laid off and also in many cases they're being asked to take on more debt to see them through the crisis whether it's taking on a mortgage holiday or um, you know if their landlord does offer them a rent suspension which many are not doing then you know they're going to have to pay all of that back these small businesses are going to have to pay back the loans that they're taking out and meanwhile the people that they owe those debts to are being quite substantively shielded from the effects of the crisis and aren't being asked to sacrifice any of their income so the landlords and the banks so on your question is it better than if they'd done nothing i think for sure it's better than if they'd done nothing which is partly why despite their massive ideological opposition to the state they've done these things because they they knew that they had to because otherwise we would have had literally mass mass layoffs um, and a downturn the likes of which we've never seen but I think the point is it's not only better for the direct beneficiaries you know the low-income workers and the and the struggling businesses that are ostensibly being helped it's better for for the rich um, and the asset owners that they owe rent to that they owe debts to and in the long term it, it's probably going to benefit those groups a lot more than it's going to benefit the the you know, theoretically intended recipients who are still often going to struggle, going to go into debt, going to get into hardship, 
going to fail in the case of businesses. Um, so, Shreya, Christine mentioned a, a few ways in which uh, it, these bailout plans are going to cause inequality there. Um, but I wondered if you could explain, you know, specifically your report looks at businesses and home ownership. And I just wondered uh, if you can speak in a bit more detail about why it's those two areas that will benefit rentiers. And also, um, just for an idiot like me, what is a rentier exactly? If you could explain that uh, properly, because it wasn't a term that I'd come across uh, until reading your report. Um, yeah, sure. So when we, we when we say rentiers, we're talking about... Um, you know, when you look at different things in the economy, there are some things which come out of work that people do. And then there are some things which kind of just exist, whether or not people are doing that work. So if you if you think about land, for example, if your landlord suddenly like moved to Australia, like that land would still exist. It's not like they're, they're like making that land. So that's what we mean. So for those things, it's not really about incentivizing people to produce them. It's about sort of how are they distributed and what are the property rights for them? Right. So so they're people that sort of work by not working. <laughs> is, is that how that works? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then and then, yeah. And when we also think about, you know, who's done very well out of the last 10 or more years and we look at how since the last crisis, like asset prices have gone up a lot more than incomes. You can, you know, you can like part of our messages like these people have done very well out of the last 10 years. Like um, and now there's this crisis and like could yes could some of that cost be borne by the people who've done very well and as part of that you know the the people who are typically um landlords and big business owners tend to be of a certain age group and the resolution foundation this week did a report saying that young people are most likely to have lost work due to the pandemic uh, and obviously they're less likely to own homes um and generally they're renters um are we looking at further age inequality then because of these bailout measures um especially in the last 10 years have particularly affected sort of millennials and generation z's people in the first place yeah um i think so i think that's that's a big question and a lot of it depends on like what the government does now so that that's the sort of big unanswered question right now but if you look at what happened after the last crisis when they cut interest rates and they did a massive program of quantitative easing and that kind of pushed up house prices a lot um and then because of that um like house prices were more unaffordable for young people um, and so home ownership among young people fell. So if the same thing happens after this crisis, then we might we might see that again. But it, it all really depends on what decisions the government makes from now. So, yeah, as, as Shreya said, I guess the rentier by rentier, we mean people who are earning their wealth by kind of owning or controlling assets that are scarce um, or that they can charge other people to use rather than by working. And I think it's interesting to just explore how that plays out in terms of banks, because it might might not be as intuitively obvious how a bank is extracting rent compared to, say, a landlord that you can very you know, clearly see that they control the land, which is a physical asset that they own. Um, but banks basically control the money supply and people's ability to get credit to weather a crisis like this. And that is basically an asset that gives them power, the fact that they control that asset and they're able to charge people interest um, to use that, uh, which is a vehicle through which they can extract what we would also refer to as rent. Um, and I think one thing that really has not been discussed very much, but is a big issue with how the government has responded to the crisis is this um, loan guarantee scheme for small businesses. So you might have heard that Rishi Sunak has um, underwritten 330 billion of loans to small businesses. I think what most people don't realise, or for a start, 
um, banks haven't made anything like 330 billion of small of loans to small businesses and they're not going to um, but what, what most people don't realize is that that is a guarantee for the bank not the business so the business who's taking on that loan if they can't pay it back they will still default on the loan and they will still go bust but the bank will then get reimbursed by the state for the value of the loan that they would have been paid from the business so it's basically a kind of indirect bailout or a subsidy from the state to the big commercial banks like hsbc barclays and all the rest of it um, and what's really problematic about that is that in most cases the government is not imposing any conditions on the interest rate that banks can charge on those loans um, so it's kind of a bit like 2008 in that we are basically socializing banks losses during the crisis but we're still letting them privatize all the gains um, and so businesses aren't being protected in that sense businesses are still taking on the full risk of borrowing in a downturn and i think we are likely to see another wave of business failures over the next year or so as businesses can't pay that debt back um, but it's banks that are then being essentially fully insulated from those conditions and that kind of adverse economic environment that means the borrowers can't pay the debt back. And, and you just mentioned that not all businesses are receiving those loans. I have I have read about quite a few, especially sort of uh, smaller businesses, really struggling to be accepted for them. Um, why why is that happening? Um, a number of reasons, I think. Um, so. I think partly it's that big banks just are not set up to lend to small businesses. They don't have the staff, the expertise, the relationships, you know, over the last decade or so or a few decades, they've become much more interested in mortgage lending and kind of, you know, international investment banking, whatever. Um, small business lending is just a bit, it's kind of too much hard work. It's not profitable enough. So they just physically don't have the expertise and the staff to do it and to do it quickly um, and to assess which businesses are going to be viable or not in what is a really you know, uncertain economic environment. So this is a big issue. And like, to be fair to the banks, obviously, of course, there's like a lot of genuine uncertainty there about which businesses are going to be viable, which is one of the reasons that I would argue um, asking them to take out private loans maybe isn't the best way of supporting them through this crisis, right? Because it is really hard to know which businesses are going to be able to pay that debt back. Um, but because they don't have those deep relationships with borrowers to know like who's a sound, what's a sound business and what's not, they usually try and assess that based on sort of algorithms. Um, it's just they're just kind of panicking and and have sort of been slightly paralyzed, I think, at knowing kind of how to channel this money to businesses. And the way the state has had to respond to that is basically just by increasing the subsidy. So for the very smallest businesses, they're now guaranteeing 100 percent of the loan where before it was 80 percent. So the bank's loan is fully de-risked, like the, the state is taking on 100 percent of the risk of the bank making that loan. And like I said, then if that business fails, the business still fails, but the bank gets the value of the loan from the state plus the interest that they've been able to charge. Wow. So this sort of idea that they're supporting workers and businesses is actually supporting banks, half supporting workers and businesses. Right, exactly. And I think this is the point we make in the report and that Shreya was making, right, is that like, yes, you know, the government is underwriting wages for people. It's underwriting these loans for businesses. Um and that is helping people. But what is it helping them to do? So like on the one hand, it's helping them to carry on paying rent and bills to landlords, utility companies, banks. And on the other hand, in a lot of cases, like as for businesses, it's asking them to take on more debt, which will also have to be paid back to banks. Um, so it is a more complicated picture than just, you know, the state is helping workers, helping businesses. 
And Christine, I also wanted to, to ask about like uh, self-employment. I'm, I'm self-employed and uh, been having a chat with a lot of other self-employed people lately about the fact that for years you were told you were meant to claim expenses. And now, of course, if you claimed any expenses, you made less profit, which means you get less self-employment support. And we're suddenly in a lot more of a pickle than we were before. Um, they've made it very hard for self-employed people. Are we looking at a future where maybe sort of uh, small to medium enterprises and self-employment is, is no longer a thing because there hasn't been support for it during this time? Um, I don't know about no longer a thing. I think, I mean, on self-employment, there's a lot of different things going on there, aren't there? Because there's people like, like you or I who maybe are, are kind of, I would say, genuinely sort of freelancers who work for ourselves. And then there's this sort of whole part of the economy that is based on bogus self-employment and the kind of gig economy and companies like Uber and Deliveroo and whatever who almost force their workers to take on a self-employed status basically as a way to make them shoulder risk and have fewer rights and I think actually this crisis has really exposed some of the problems with that model and the fact that a lot of those people can't afford to stay at home if they get sick because um, they have no sick pay or whatever um, maybe that's a slightly separate issue from from the one that you're talking about I think in in response to your question what I do think we are likely to see after this crisis is a massive concentration of economic power and, and kind of market consolidation in more in the hands of big companies because as you say um, self-employed people and small businesses that might have kind of less ability to weather a crisis like this um, less of a sort of financial buffer or ability to borrow or whatever um, are more likely to struggle uh, where kind of when they then fail, particularly in the case of small businesses that say like we see a wave of small business failures over the next year or so, um, either those struggling businesses might be acquired directly by bigger businesses, by bigger competitors, or their market share might just be kind of hoovered up by those bigger businesses once they no longer exist. Um, and so I think that's also really relevant to the issues we talk about in the report in terms of rent extraction and inequality, because you know if you've got a market that's more concentrated and you've got concentration of power in the hands of a few big businesses and big actors that increases their ability to sort of extract rents from everybody else to kind of overcharge them and exploit them because they've got such kind of overwhelming market power people almost don't have a choice except to use them so that is another dynamic that is going to make the economy more unequal in the long term unless something is done about it I did read, uh, I, I can't remember where this article was, um, but, you know, it was an article entitled, Will This Pandemic uh, Destroy Globalisation? Because there's no longer, you know, travel and uh, it's it's causing international, you know, difficulties between, with international business. But actually, in the way you're saying it, it'll be large global companies that take over all the smaller ones. So if anything, it'll increase it. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I, I mean, Shreya may also have thoughts on this. I think it's complicated, the globalisation thing, right? Because the, obviously the, the restrictions on travel are a thing. I think also we're seeing um, massive rise in border control as countries try and control the um, the pandemic and people are starting to talk about sort of repatriating production so that they are more self-sufficient in that context. And, and you've got people like you know, Donald Trump and Bolsonaro in Brazil, who are basically sort of right-wing nationalists in charge. So I think it is complicated, but I think, you know, in some respects we might see a kind of deglobalization. but I think you're, you're absolutely right to point out the implication of what I've just said is we're not going to see going along with that a decline in the power of global capital and of massive transnational corporations at all. Um, and I think it would be a real mistake to think that that is going to happen. Yeah. Um, I think, like, yeah, yeah, I agree with a lot of that. But I think, again, like, it really depends on on what governments do. Like, if you you know, you could see 
um, an in increases in trade barriers after this as countries say you know we want to have more manufacturing in our own home country so that we feel safer and that will affect the balance of power but you know it could just be that you get sort of other different powerful companies operating within a country like coca-cola uk or something so i don't yeah we don't know yeah, that's it. I, I've got this horrible vision of just Amazon owning everything. Uh, Jeff <laughs> yeah. Bezos lives on the moon. Um, so, well, I mean, a really important question, um, and, and Shreya, if, if you want to start with this, it's just what are, what are other countries doing that would have provided us more security and less possibility of a recession and more inequality post-pandemic? Because other places seem to be getting this right yeah, so I mean, Christine can talk more about this, but we, you know, we see in some countries um, where they've done their um, small business loans, they've got interest rate caps, whereas here you're seeing banks in some cases charging like really high rates of interest to small businesses. Um, you see, like in Spain, for example, they've said um, for big private landlords, like the landlord should take some of the hit on the rent where tenants can't pay, not all on the tenant. Um, um, but also, I think it's not just about what they've done in this crisis. It's also about the policies that existed anyway that sort of kick in during a crisis and provide like automatic stabilizers in the economy. So where you have a strong social insurance system or where you have like rent controls, like those those things are just going to help you weather a crisis better and stop some of the tendency towards concentration of power and wealth. But because those some of those stabilizers have been taken away from the British economy and system, you kind of see these things happen kind of automatically. I think that's a really important point, yeah, because I, th I think so much of the conversation that we're having now about things like the cost of the furlough scheme and can we afford it, you know, the only reason schemes like that are needed is because we've so comprehensively trashed our social safety net, right? So in other, the whole point of the social safety net is that you can afford to live if you get sick or if you get unemployed or whatever. Um, and other countries still have that, but we've basically vandalised our social security system <laughs> over the last decade or more. Um, which is why we've had to be sort of desperately trying to reverse engineer all of these crisis response measures to make sure that the entire economy doesn't completely implode and we have millions of people out on the streets, right? So I think that's a really important point. Um, but also, as Shreya says, I think other people, other countries have handled the crisis response better. Um, like, for example, uh, Shreya mentioned the Swiss loan scheme, which is um, capped at either 0% or 0.5% interest. So banks basically can't extract excess profit from small businesses on those crisis loans, which they can in this country. And also really importantly, I think Switzerland and a lot of other European countries have relied a lot more on grants rather than loans for small businesses. Because I think there is a wider question about whether asking businesses to take on debt during a recession is really the best mechanism here. And so there are other countries that are pumping less private debt into the economy. So there's always a lot of focus on public debt and this obsession with the deficit and are we taking on too much debt to fund things like the furlough scheme. But the much, much bigger problem in the context of the UK economy is this massive expansion of private debt. And there are other countries that are relying less on that and more on just the government literally directly giving grants to people that then don't have to be paid back. Um, to small businesses, for example, rather than asking them to take on more debt, which they probably can't afford to pay back. There was a, um, I mean, I should say that all of my knowledge is just in the creative area because I have no clue of other businesses and, and how they work. But, but you know, Germany is uh, just supporting artists for, I think, a year and supporting theatres and artistic venues. And you sort of go, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, we, we've had reports this week that the Globe Theatre is probably going to have to close quite a lot of theatres and arts venues going to have to close because they can't support themselves without it. And other countries have fully taken that on board and, and supported it. I'm quite jealous, really. Uh, it's a real shame. Um, so I, I suppose, you know, in, in, in your report, you've put quite a few policy recommendations um, 
about what should happen next. Because obviously we're just at the beginning of this bailout scheme, or nearly at the end, depending on uh, what Rishi Sunak was saying about the self-employed support this this week. That it might just end in June. Um, what do you What are you suggesting should happen next? And um, also, I suppose I should ask really what What can listeners do to support and and help persuade the government to uh, to push through with them? So. On the banking stuff, I think, as you know, as we've already said, there there are short term measures that could be taken to help small businesses like capping interest rates on the loans they're being asked to take out. But I think we also need to be looking much more imaginatively at kind of big picture reform of the banking system. So um, why is it that we've got these big banks that are so rubbish at lending to small businesses and like so desperate to extract profit from them where a lot of other countries have bigger sort of public and cooperative banking sectors that aren't set up to do that and are probably going to be supporting small businesses better through the crisis so one slight hobby horse of mine that i just have to mention is the royal bank of scotland rbs right which is still majority owned by the taxpayer um which is currently the biggest provider of crisis loans to small businesses which i think is basically acting as a de facto business public business bank during the crisis um but they're just not acknowledging that because the share price is on the floor right now buying up the rest of the bank and turning it into a proper public interest bank would cost i think at the moment slightly less than five billion which might have seemed like a lot a few months ago but in the context of the amount the government is spending on on crisis response is really not that much um, and there may be some campaigning around that starting up soon. Positive Money are an organisation who have campaigned on this issue in the past and saying, like, we need to keep ownership of RBS and use it to transform our banking system rather than just sending it back to the private sector. Um, so it's worth a follow of Positive Money if you want to um, keep abreast of that issue. Um, and then on rents, you know, uh, there's obviously this big row about whether we should be freezing rents for private tenants. Um, and clearly, you know, something needs to be done to rebalance the burden, right, between landlords and tenants, because it's just completely unsustainable, um, th- this uh, situation at the moment where the people that can least afford to take a hit are being asked to get into debt to protect the incomes of landlords who are most able to weather the crisis. Um, so if Labour and the Tories are both saying they're not willing to countenance a rent freeze, which they currently are, um then we need to do something else to rebalance that burden. So whether it's thinking about rent controls, whether it's actually government buying up private rented housing and converting it to social housing, which is what they're doing in Edinburgh now. So like empty Airbnb properties are being bought up by the council and used to house the homeless. So that's kind of fun. Um, so if you're interested in that stuff, I know you're, you're talking to London Renters Union, um, who are amazing and doing great work on this stuff. Other organisations working on this include um, NEF, the New Economics Foundation, and ACORN, which is another renters' organisation. So they are all worth a follow if you want to help support the campaign of private renters to get a better deal in the crisis. Um, yeah, I just add that, you know, just like, you know, when you're listening to people talk about this in the media, just like bearing in mind that, you know, some of the, the ways that people look at it, like that, you know, everyone who's rich has earned all of that money and worked really hard for it. And therefore, like this, you know, we can't do anything to change how things are the way they are. Like sort of, you know, bear in mind that not all of that is true. And there are sort of, it is also to do with like the concentration of power and people sort of writing the rules of the game to benefit themselves. And so, you know, being like, yeah, there are, there are things we can and should do to do things differently. And yeah, just like if you, you know, if you can like getting, involved in politics like getting involved with the unions that kind of thing
Thank you to Christine and Shreya. Uh, you can find IPPR at IPPR.org or on Twitter at IPPR. And you can find the Who Wins and Who Pays report on their site under publications. And I've popped a link to it in the podcast blurb too. Shreya is on Twitter at Shreya G Nanda and Christine is uh, Oofling, which uh, she mentioned last time she was on doesn't really make sense um but i've put all those links in the podcast blurb too and you can find christine's other writing and articles at christineberry.net and there's another interview in a minute but first i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Look, I was going to do a lengthy middle bit about just why you should care about the coming story, even though, let's face it, you'd have a much nicer life if you didn't give a shit about it and couldn't pinpoint who it looks like every time you do the Instagram filter that makes the middle bit of your face really small and the rest really big. And yes, you might say, but really, really, we should all be focused on the report saying that coronavirus infections spread from 200,000 to 1.5 million in the UK in the nine days before Johnson even bothered with a lockdown, which will have directly led to more deaths. And also, I would have had to do that one gig that I really didn't enjoy. But still, yes, you should care about that quite a lot. And you should also care about the Cummings thing uh, and then reasons and stuff. But I'm not going to go through all the things I was going to say now because uh, it's, high, it's 11, it's 11 o'clock. Um, well, okay, I'll go through it very briefly because um, here it is. It's because pushing through the coronavirus bill as emergency legislation, meaning it happened without debate, and then turned into law, giving the government powers to do what they like, then them letting their own people flout that law is some authoritarian level shit. Sure, everyone must burn all the books except those in your private library that you can enjoy. I mean, add that to the Prime Minister saying Durham police lied or coming saying the media lied and then admitting to him and his wife lying in the media and you're finding yourself in a place so gaslit that you could visit it a day after having onion soup and absolutely no one would be able to tell what your emissions were. Changing the rules while the pandemic is still in place just to suit one man is extremely dangerous and undermines all safety measures and scientific advice because now we may as well all drive to Durham except for me it'd be pointless I don't have family there and I've been before so I don't even want to do sightseeing and I don't have any gigs there right now because well you know so look I'll just stay here okay but as so many have lost friends and family and not been able to see them and struggled with childcare and not travelled for help they then now might and I'm not sure if you know how germs work but it really won't help. 
And then, of course, there are issues of Cummings driving unsafely, which at the very least should mean his licence is revoked. And then there's the fact that he's just a massive bellend. And there were going to be about 14 other reasons, but instead, as it's late, here, as requested by Taz, are there not that many things that I've described Dominic Cummings as over the past few months, with a few extras thrown in for fun. Dominic Cummings is the only man whose Nintendo Me is the default one, but with the hair removed. He's a man who definitely bases how life should be on computer games and no doubt spends nights playing Call of Duty online just so he can swear at children in other countries. Dominic Cummings is a man known for looking like if Phil Collins had been withered by a curse. He's a walking dead cat, or at least that's what he models his appearance on. He's a stupid moon. He's Roger in American Dad. He's politics' very own lemon grab. Dominic Cummings is a haunted Bunsen honeydew. He's the original Dr. Finkelstein. He's what if Morph's friend Chaz was an upset incel. He's the owner of Lil Bits in Rick and Morty. He's the Cloud City Lobot. Dominic Cummings is the love child of Butthead and some discarded overfried egg white. As mentioned in the first interview on this week's show, if you're one of the 4.5 million households that live in privately rented accommodation, you might be feeling a tad hard done by, with the government's only ounce of support for you being that the three-month eviction ban ends in the summer and then it'll be warm enough to sleep in the park. Six in ten renters are saying they've suffered financially from the crisis, one in five of those say they're having to choose between rent or food, and one in four have said they've had to voluntarily leave their homes and move in with friends or parents. And you can ask my daughter, sorry agent, who might only be two, but she's already aware that being in lockdown with her parents has definitely made the situation much, much worse. Renters' unions have called on the government to suspend rents for the duration of the pandemic, but they've not done it because that would mean for a lot of MPs they'd lose one of their extra incomes. It's not fair to expect that from them when there's also so few after-dinner speaking for lobbyist opportunities right now and George Osborne took all the other jobs available back in 2017. I'm a renter because, like an idiot, I was born in London, grew up in London and do a lot of work in London, which means that the last time I checked, if I had any sort of deposit, I could potentially buy a garage off the Hangar Lane roundabout, but chances are I'd be turned down for the mortgage because I'm self-employed. So, like many others, I don't really have a choice, and having looked up my landlord and found he's pretty wealthy and may well be developing property in the occupied territories of the West Bank like an absolute bastard... I feel like it'd be nice if he and others said, hey, I can see that totally not of your own accord, you now have no income, so why not chill on rent till coughing in public isn't a hate crime anymore? But of course, he hasn't. The second interview this week is with Guzal Hakani at the London Renters' Union, a grassroots organisation that stands up for rights for renters and calls for affordable housing for those in the capital who are currently spending 70% of their income, or rather no income right now, on their rent. Their current campaign, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, is calling on renters in the capital to only pay what they can as a protest, and Guzzle kindly agreed to tell me all about it. For those of you listeners who aren't in London, yes, I know this is all very London-centric, and what about all the other places on earth like Lilliput or Coronation Street? Well, there are renters' unions all over the country, and I'll list a handful of non-London ones after this interview. If you have any uh, you know of that I don't mention and you'd like me to give them a shout out to their campaigns uh, during this crisis, please do get in touch and I will do so on a future episode. For now, here's Guzzle. Hi, Guzzle. Um, could you um, give us an overview of the rights or the lack of rights that renters in the UK and particularly in London had uh, before the pandemic? So across the UK, renters are in a very vulnerable position. They always were, especially because of Section 21, um, that what is that the government has agreed to remove 
but it is still not uh, in the legislation. So by Section 21, the landlord can actually not really give you any reason and give you a very short notice to uh, ask you to uh, evict, to to evict you basically. Um, And with this pandemic, what has happened is uh, that the income has um, uh, uh, has been impacted of millions of people, and the most vulnerable tenants uh, who already have been finding it difficult to pay such high rent, especially in cities like London, have even the ones who have uh, had a furloughed uh, uh, salary. It's it's actually in effect twenty percent less of their usual salary, and most of the people in London spend almost seventy percent of their income on rent. So th- there has been a significant uh, impact on on them and the rent that would sort of pile up, the debt that would pile up through the months when they haven't been able to pay, haven't been able to uh, have proper wages or have had to take a 20% cut. So, the, the, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say that the, um, you know, I suppose the thing, tenants didn't have very good rights beforehand. They've got even less rights yeah. now. But, but also, you know, one of the arguments is, oh, landlords have to pay their mortgages. But... It's this is disproportional, isn't it? Why homeowners are getting more support, aren't they? Homeowners are definitely getting more support in the form of uh, a mod a mortgage holiday from the banks if they need to, and that that is in no way they are obliged to transfer it to the tenants. It's just uh, you know a, a a really skewed sort of uh, imbalance of power here. Yeah, it shows that there are there are some people that are being cared for and others that definitely aren't. Absolutely, yeah. No, we just feel that we're completely left, uh, you know, by ourselves. Have we have almost no say in this? Uh, uh, so it, it's just an awful situation. So one of the little bits of leeway that renters are being given is that there's been a temporary eviction ban uh, for three months, which is nearly up now. Why is that not enough? So the three months eviction ban was definitely a relief, but all it's going to do is delay the um, the huge problem that is going to erupt uh, immediately after the ban is lifted, which is at the end of June. So uh, there have been uh, like according to some statistics, only 44% of renters have been able to pay their rent uh, in March and April. So uh, they can always bring in Section 8, which is uh, uh, rent areas, uh, uh, you know, where because of rent areas, the landlord can evict uh, the tenant. And it, it will be like, you know, a whole... Uh, how can I put it? Uh, lots and lots of people who will have to, uh, you know, who will be evicted, uh, essentially. Um, yeah. uh, and and how how is that fair? 
Yeah, it's terrific. And I, I guess, you know, it's only three months. At the end of three months, just that's going to mean a whole lot of homelessness all of a sudden. Yes, and it's something that I feel that the government has not thought through or they just don't care. So there's a deep apathy uh, where tenants are concerned. And it just feels like you wonder, uh, is it because uh, the majority of the people in the parliament are themselves landlords? Um, or at least a very big proportion of them are. I think one in four uh, MPs are uh, landlords. So uh, would that be the reason? It's, I mean, it's definitely a good question to ask, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's one of the things I wanted to ask really is, you know, this lack of support for renters, uh, I'm guessing that affects specific social groups who don't include MPs. So obviously, yes, it won't be the people who are, you know, like, you know, the upper, uh, the, the people who are earning enough or lots of money. I'm, yes, there are specific social groups that are affected. For instance, in Neum, where I live, um, which is also which also happens to be the uh, the place with the highest rate of uh, COVID nineteen deaths. It is also the poorest borough in the whole of UK. Um, and also the borough with the highest number of household household debt. Um, so it is not a coincidence, and, um, and that seventy three percent of the residents in this borough are from the black and ethnic minority. So there is definitely, you know, lots of uh, connections to be made. And I wonder, I mean, as you know, your, your borough in Newham, I'm guessing quite a lot of people are renters. Quite a lot of people can't afford their own homes yes. because property prices, I'm guessing, will be as ridiculous as, as the rest of London. Yes, in the last uh, several, in the last few years, I think it has grown to 400% the property wow. prices. So uh, the councils are actively, you know, asking people, to move out of their communities. Like if you can't afford to live here, don't live here. That, that's as simple as that. So they're, they're just attempting to gentrify the area? Absolutely, yeah, that is what it is. And is, is there also an, an, an age uh, issue here? Because, you know, there's a lot of young people are going to be renters rather than homeowners. To be honest, I don't think in a place like this, age is a big factor. I don't have any statistics to back this, but I feel that I can see around me. I myself, I'm 40 years old. I do not have any, but I've been renting for the past 10 years. The amount of money that I've put in that, there is no way I can ever, you know, save for a deposit. Um, so, I they they are it's not entirely you know like in the rest of the UK it could be that the um, or even rest of London uh, that it's mainly the young people who are um, renting over here it is uh, it, it's across the age range. That's fair. I mean, I'm 39. I was just sort of pretending that we're both young for a second. (laughs) (laughs) I was being hopeful. (laughs) Uh, Tell me about uh, about the London Renters Union um, and what they do and the Can't Pay, Won't Pay campaign. 
So the amazing thing I really feel very proud about this is that London Dentists Union started in Newham uh, and it's only a couple of years ago and it's a really empowering organization which sort of uh, attempts to give London the renters uh, in London a voice. It just seems like, you know, there's nobody to speak for us. Um, the people, for instance, the, the a majority of the MPs uh, a lot of MPs are um, landlords themselves, so it's very unlikely that they're going to pass anything that, you know that would go against their interests to such an extent that um, you know the power the power balance would uh, make sense would would sort of uh, be more equitable. So, so, so. What London Renters Union does is it trains people in their rights. It trains renters. It also cre has created an amazing support system where you feel that you're not alone. You you can sort of you know ask for help. You can give help, and um, and and that is empowering in itself. Um, so the can't pay won't pay campaign we started last week and it has got a tremendous response um we uh, what we are essentially telling people is that they have to uh, focus on uh, their essentials and uh, putting food on the table and supporting their family rather than paying that money to the uh, landlord um, so there is obviously a choice uh, that lots of people are having to face in this pandemic lockdown situation, uh, whether they should, uh, you know, um, um, think of uh, these essential necessities or uh, pay the landlord. And all we are saying is that withhold oh, the amount that you need to so that you can uh uh, you can have enough for your own basic needs. Um, and uh, lots of people are having to do that anyway. But uh, by uh, by giving, uh, by, by starting this campaign, what we're doing is having a voice, empowering ourselves and our communities so that they are not, uh, they don't feel isolated and there is a voice, there is a, a collective uh, uh, a political voice uh, in, in this situation. So what are the London Renters uh, Union's demands with the Can't Pay, Won't Pay campaign? So the Can't Pay, Won't Pay campaign, if you go to our website, you can see it, but I can tell you about it. So the first rent, we have five demands. The first one is suspend rent. That six in 10 renters have lost income. The government must act to prevent a chaotic rent debt and eviction crisis. It should not, uh, uh, this would only accrue rent debt. And so the second demand is that there should be no rent debt. Rent is already completely unaffordable and we can't pay to uh, we can't afford to pay back missed payments on top. So if we are not able to pay back pay um, or um, have decent income for these three months, but it is only deferred. So that effectively means that our rent, we have to pay a part of 
the installment uh, on top of our regular rent that effectively means a rent increment and make the eviction ban permanent so no one should be made homeless during the pandemic or the aftermath so the section 21 uh, uh, evictions uh, was uh, uh, supposed to be cancelled. Uh, the government has promised that it will uh, remove it permanently and it has to be hardwired in the legislation. The fourth is introduce rent controls. So, uh, as I said, Londoners spend about 70% of their income on rent, um, leaving little left for food or other essentials. So, uh, ideally, um, it should be... It but the the rent should not be over thirty percent of uh, an income, uh, and it it can easily be worked out, you know, area by area, what the average income is of a certain place, and then have caps on rent accordingly. And fifth, and quite important, is that no borders in housing. So racism and the hostile environment. Uh, means that people of color and migrants are worst hit also because they're not able to access um, housing benefit or any such uh, safety net uh, because of the government's policies, uh, even during this pandemic. Um, so the, that has to be the, that has to be taken into consideration. That has to be addressed. Yeah, and that, a lot of that, as as you mentioned, is is not just for now. Those are really important things that need to happen in future for uh, renters' situations to to change and be viable. Yes, yes, you're right. You're right. Now I feel that now is the time to sort of look at this already broken uh, system, um, and I feel like the pandemic has uh, thrown uh, all of this out in the open, like shown light on this. Uh, which otherwise has been neglected. Uh, so if anything, now is the time to fix all of these things. So a uh, very important question. How can uh, people listening to this podcast and um, people that are affected by, um, you know, they're not having their rent being cancelled, um, how can they support this campaign? So if you're listening to this and if you are a renter, then please uh, join us, come to our website, uh, London Renters Union, and our uh, webpage, uh, Can't Pay, Won't Pay. Uh, sign up on it, tell us about It's a very short form. Um, uh, fill that in um, so that you can join your voice with us in solidarity. Um, and speak to your friends about it, talk about this, because I think we very often don't, uh, you know, uh, talk about uh, the difficulties that we are facing. Um, so organize around it in your own communities. We have had uh, uh, a new, um, uh, uh, you know, new groups around Can't Pay, Won't Pay campaign campaign have been mushrooming everywhere. Uh, there was one uh, that emerged in Camden very, like, you know, just a couple of days ago. So yes, you know, organize and get in touch with us, join your voices and join your forces with us.
And, and I should also say, I guess if, if people are listening and they're homeowners, they can still support. They can still support, yes, of course, because if they are homeowners, they obviously know somebody who is, you know, dear to them, their friend or family who may be going through a similar situation. So if it's if not for themselves, uh, but for, they, you know, their friends and family and thinking of um, people in the society who are um, who are facing this, um, show your solidarity, show your support. Yes. Thank you to Guzzle for that. You can find the London Renters Union at londonrentersunion.org and their Can't Pay, Won't Pay campaign is at that forward slash Can't Pay, Won't Pay uh, or you can head to can'tpaywon'tpay.uk. They're also on Twitter at LDN Renters Union and Guzzle is also on Twitter at Socialist Inside. If you're outside London and rent or want to support renters, then check out, as Christine mentioned in the first interview, acorn at acorntheunion.org.uk or acorn underscore tweet on Twitter. And they have various regional centres too, including Acorn Manchester and Acorn Liverpool. There are also lots of local renters associations with a quick Twitter search bringing up at Kent Renters and Oxford Tenants Union at Ox Tenants Union too. Uh, There's absolutely loads more. I'm not going to list them all. I'm very tired. Uh, So do search for where you are and see what you can find. Who else should I speak to on this podcast? Let me know at all the usuals at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And in fact, just do one of those things because I feel this week there's already been far, far too much of people not getting the message or at least choosing not to. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you once again for connecting your owl receptors to this week's Babble Wave. And of course, you've made it to the end of the show. So what is the hot polgus fact this week? Well, as the main news uh, has obviously all been about the Prime Minister's special advisor, I thought you might want to know who the worst ever special advisor in history was. No, it's not Hollyoaks extra Adam Smith, uh, the Department of Culture spad who had to resign after being more in bed with despotic prune Rupert Murdoch than his nighttime catheter. Nor is it, surprisingly, a joint win by the Location, Location, Location presenters for the Upside Down, which is a hard job considering the actual Location, Location presenters probably are also that. Uh, Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy, who advised the only person who could grimace with her entire body at all times, Theresa May, to somehow be even more shit than she already was. No, the worst ever special advisor actually goes to the person who advised part man, part pipe, Harold Wilson, to have special advisors. Now, you might think I mean Julia Davis character Marcia Falkender, but actually it was his local optician, Susan, who told Wilson that for help with long distance, he might need a special visor, which he misheard entirely. Thanks, Susan. Thanks very fucking much. You could have at least suggest that you just go for a drive in his car. Anyway, that's the hugely underwhelming hot pole goss fact of the week. Seriously, Susan, fuck's sake. And if you need more like that, or in fact less, why not persuade so many people to listen to this show that I'm too embarrassed to do something so rubbish every week? You can do that by shouting all about it where you live, as everyone else might be in. You know, if they aren't on their way to Durham by now. Or better yet, just post it on all your social media places. Give the show a nice review on Apple Podcasts or the like, and if you can, please donate to the Kofi or Patreon sites too. Appreciation station in the nation to Acast for hosting this, my Bro the Last Skeptic for Music Times, Cat Day for the Linear Liner Notes and Mushy Bees for Artistic Wonders. This will be back next week when the story develops and it's revealed that Dominic Cummings also broke lockdown by having a massive party in his local park with 600 friends and family but gets away with it by insisting they were all there to do childcare because hey, you know what kids are like when they've had cake. Bye!
This week's show is sponsored by Cummings Eye Tests. Worried that you can't see okay? Join up at Cummings Eye Test and we'll strap you to one of our selection of fun, fast vehicles. And if you manage not to die at 120 miles per hour in a land speed or on our specially designed death trap, sorry, racetrack, then you're more 2020 than this year and ready to go. Please note we will not be held responsible if you don't survive as our business is reasonable and lawful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.